to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 105, Pope Leo IV. Another one so soon. I know, I know. There's a lot of names that start to become a lot more common, and it's, I feel like for the next rest of the year, give or take, we're going to be dealing with the same names just over and over and over. So prepare yourself for that. I will not. With some notable exceptions, but they're notable exceptions and famous exceptions. So they will stand out all on their own. So Leo. Leo was born around 790 and he was the son of Radold, which suggests that they were originally of some sort of Lombard descent. This doesn't give us much of an indication as to whether he was noble or not, but given that in this time period it's big enough that they have to mention when someone's not a noble pope, we can assume he was at least on some level of minor nobility. And as per usual, the Liber Pontificalis has some high praise to lavish upon him. This man, so Catholic and apostolic, had much patience and much humility, Bountiful, dutiful, innocent and kind, a lover of justice and a most ardent governor of the people, he was also an untiring searcher of the scriptures, and was ever intent on watching and prayer. In his sacred breast there dwelt what we read of in the Holy Gospel, the cunning of a serpent and the innocence of a dove. Filled with the beauty of all holiness, he was a lover of religious men, and of those who serve God assiduously in all things. He was a mentor of the poor and a despiser of himself. This despiser of himself line stuck out to me. This is, this is new. You know, oh holy, oh prudent, oh temperate, lover of religious men, lover of the poor, but despiser of self. Hmm. Hates himself. And, and it's definitely being praised as a very good thing. So take that for what you will. So Leo would enter the church life early and first become a monk of the Order of St. Benedict at the Monastery of St. Martin. And there he was an avid student and earned a stellar reputation as a perfect monk, so much so that he caught the attention of Pope Gregory IV, who made him a subdeacon at the Lateran. He remained in this high esteem after Pope Gregory died, and Sergius II consecrated him to be the cardinal priest of Santi Quattro Coronati in 844. Then, when Pope Sergius died unexpectedly in January of 847, Leo was quickly and unanimously elected and consecrated to be the next pope. Again, this is a, a very strong indication that he was of some nobility, because they just went ahead and did it. Or it's just a really strong indication that the people of Rome are very shaken after the Saracen attack the previous summer, and... Not a single person wanted to drag out an election process that would leave them without a designated leader when there was a very high risk that it was going to happen again. But what that also meant was that, yet again, they did not wait for imperial confirmation from Emperor Lothair before they consecrated Leo as Pope. Fortunately, in this moment, it doesn't seem to have caused any sort of level of imperial discontent. And there's some speculation that Leo immediately wrote to the emperor to explain what happened and to profess his adherence to the Constitutio, despite the oversight of the people. 
Or, again, it's just possible that given the state of Rome and Sergius's sudden death, the rush of the Roman people was just forgiven as they hastened to rebuild. Either way, we do know that Emperor Lothair and the Pope were on fairly secure terms, as, as we're going to see. But in the moment, it didn't seem to matter to Leo whether he was on good terms with the Emperor or not, because he had work to do if he was going to satisfy the anxieties of the Romans who had voted him in so quickly. The Saracen attack of 846 had revealed just how woefully underprepared Rome was for an attack, and two of the most important spaces in Rome were destroyed and desecrated, St. Peter's and St. Paul's. And so immediately, Pope Leo began a massive, massive building and fortification effort to make Rome as safe as possible before another assault. This is good planning. Yes. Finally, someone's going to do you know something what? about it. The last time was bad. That was a bad show. <laughs> it was bad planning. Why didn't they think of this? Leo is thinking about it. First, the walls of the city and their defensive towers underwent an extremely thorough repair and fortification with 15 new towers being entirely rebuilt from the ground up out of 44 towers. So there's a bunch of new fortification. This also helped to restrict ships from entering on the Tiber into the city. So they now have an entry point. Then he encapsulated the right bank of the Tiber and the Vatican Hill, i.e. the most vulnerable area outside of the city walls, containing St. Peter's and the Castel San Angelo, would be built in its own defensive stronghold with their own set of walls so that it wouldn't be left open to attack again. St. Peter's outside the walls? No more. They finally did something about it. You were so mad. That I they was. Left all I was terribly mad that everything was outside. So this area encapsulated within the walls would be known as the Leonine City and would today contain Vatican City and the Borgo neighborhood. And this remained an incredibly important defensible position and would serve to protect the popes in sieges later on. Also, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this before on the podcast, so just to be clear, the Castel San Angelo was actually originally the mausoleum of Emperor Hadrian and his family, but it was converted into a full-on defensible papal fortress in the 14th century. But clearly, as we can see, it's already being used in a similar fashion, even in the 9th century. We definitely talked about the Castel in Gregory the Great's episode, because that's where the Archangel Michael appeared to have his miracle, hence Castel San Angelo. It's the Angel Castle. It's the Angel Castle, where he comes and he puts his sword away and goes, plague is over. So, miracles. So I've got a, a an image here for you, and the Leonine city is now up to your left-hand corner. You can see it over there where the Vatican is. I do. I see St. Peter's. St. <laughs> Peter's is now in the walls. Put some walls up. Put some walls up. So important. Why didn't they do that before? But this was not all, as he also extended his fortification efforts out to the port cities that had been the first point of Muslim contact, and all the agricultural colonies along the way on the Tiber. He rebuilt Portus, which had been quickly overtaken by the Saracens, and placed it in the hands of Corsican refugees that had been forced out by Muslim conquest of Corsica. 
So not only would this leave the port town well occupied, but the defenders now have additional motivation to see it well defended, because they're all refugees. He also began the foundation of a city that will be known as Leopolis or Leopoli Chanele, as a relocation site of, for the residents of the Centrumcele, aka Civitavecchia, which had been raided and left with little protection. So he just took all those people who were left in the city and went, hey, here's your new city. Move here. It's safer. Apparently, this is great, he planned out the city in a dream. Oh, that never goes well. This was all, though, a very extensive effort that took over four years and was funded personally by the Pope and the Church, but also in part by the Emperor, who recognized the importance of Rome's defensibility. When the work was done, the Pope held a ceremony to bless the city's new protections with prayers and processions and a mass at St. Peter's to call for prolonged safety. Within Rome, he also, of course, spared no effort to restore St. Paul's and St. Peter's, beautifying and re-sanctifying the interiors with as much wealth and luxury as could be made available. Most notably, he replaced the golden covering of St. Peter's tomb, which has been described as being made from 216 pounds of gold and studded with excellent and precious gems. That is so much. 216 pounds of gold to make this covering. That's just crazy. It was the best that could be done for the physical and psychological recovery of the city, but all of the sources make note that the basilicas were never as beautiful as they once were until the actual full-on remodel of New St. Peter's, which, you know, we'll get there. He also restored all his previous posts, so just like the posts who came before him, all of the posts that he had held prior now got a facelift. So the Monastery of St. Martin and the Basilica of San Quattro Coronati and the Lateran all received rebuilding, refurnishing, and rebeautification. And there was still more! He restored the Monastery of the St. Benedict at Subiaco, and over the site of the dilapidated Santa Maria Antiqua, he built a new church aptly called Santa Maria Nova. Ooh, easy. <laughs> Who's naming these places? I'm sorry. Well, if you have antique Santa Maria, you want to have new Santa Maria. So, you know. Well, I shouldn't complain. America's mostly like, I've named this big river, but in a different language. America just names cities after other cities that already existed. But anyways, it was very fortunate that Pope Leo moved as quickly as he did to begin the fortifications. Because two years into the process, in early 849, a group of Muslim ships were seen off the coast of Sardinia, headed straight for Rome. Yes, good thing there's walls. Yeah, good thing that there's walls and towers now, because they're coming. And they are, they are coming. This isn't just like, oh, their ship looks like they're heading our way. Oh, they are a coming. Oh, Lord, they coming. <laughs> oh, Lord, they coming. And upon the news, Pope Leo wasted no time collaborating with the leaders of the city of Naples, Gaeta, and Amalfi into a maritime league to come together and fight against the invading force. Now, this is a really big deal. This alliance of coastal powers will develop into a full-on maritime republic 
incorporating various places at different times, including Amalfi, Pisa, Genoa, Venice, Ancona, Ragusa, and more, into the 10th century that will then last through the medieval and renaissance periods, and parts of it even into the 19th century. What we see here is just one of the first iterations, and I won't pretend that the Pope gets the credit for the formation of this maritime republic. In fact, if we take the Liber Pontificalis at its word, it's the leaders of these cities that come to the Pope first with their plan. But however it came about, for this moment, this is fantastically useful and a wonderful, effective defensive alliance. The son of the Duke of Naples, Caesarius, was given command of the fleet, and what followed was one of the most famous battles that the papacy would be involved in in this time period. This is the Battle of Ostia. I don't know anything about this. Well, we're going to just cover it very shortly, because it was not a particularly long battle. But the Saracens first arrived at Ostia and attacked the city. But before they could continue through the Tiber up to Portus and then to Rome, as they had done last time, the Allied fleet attacked them and forced them back. And at that point, a harsh storm off the coast of Ostia demolished the Muslim fleet, destroying most of their ships just outright. So outright that in the coming days after the battle, much of the treasure that had been plundered in the initial assault washed up on shore and was recovered to the Romans. Any survivors were captured and either hanged as pirates or forced into working on additional fortifications. So, in this moment, very quickly, there is a major defeat for the Saracens and a major moment of validation for Pope Leo and all of his efforts. This is really good. And with that massive concern out of the way, Leo was now able to focus on the other responsibilities of being a 9th century pope. And one such responsibility was to indulge the Emperor Lothair, who wrote to the pope requesting that he elevate his son, Louis II, currently king of Italy, to be his co-emperor in a coronation ceremony in Rome. If you're gonna be an emperor, you gotta have that coronation ceremony in Rome. Gotta. It's on Easter. Well, it's in April of 850, so it could have been on Easter. They love doing this on Easter. Easter and Christmas. There's a lot of coronations that go down on Christmas, like Charlemagne. Ah, uh, yes. So the Pope did do this in April of 850, and much like the other coronations that we've seen thus far, Louis was crowned and given a sword by the Pope, legitimizing his imperial authority. Where's the Pope getting all these swords? I mean, he's in Rome. There's gotta be a blacksmith. <laughs> Fine. I mean, they don't have a lot of money because they've just built all these walls and they're trying to beautify the church, so it probably wasn't the most beautiful of swords, but I'm sure, I'm sure he could find a blacksmith for the job, so. This confirms, again, that despite Pope Leo being consecrated without confirmation, imperial and papal relationships were on positive terms and that the Pope was likely actively dedicated to proving his loyalty to Lothair, because, let's be real, Lothair has never been just charitable about anything at all. That's not his style. We also know that Pope Leo held three synods during his papacy. Two were concerning ecclesiastical discipline, and are often just called of little importance. But I want to talk about one of them, as it seems to be a reflection of a larger issue that Leo is going to face, 
and other popes are going to face, which is that of disobedient clerics. The first example has to do with Anastasius Bibliothecarius, a cardinal priest of St. Marcello and a nephew of an influential bishop and legate, Arsenius of Orte. So Anastasius was a very well-educated cleric, so much so that he's thought to be one of the future compilers for the Liber Pontificalis. He may be one of our authors. Okay. I mean, eh. <laughs> Well, oh, there's more. But it seems that he felt no personal loyalty or obedience to the Pope, and much preferred Louis II, who's now co-emperor, as the true authority in Italy. And of course, this irritated Pope Leo, and in 848, Anastasius left Rome without permission of the Pope to go to Louis, and ignored repeated summons from the Pope to return. And as such, in this synod in 853, he was condemned and excommunicated. Get out. Now, while this on its own is not a particularly interesting or important story, and would otherwise just be forgotten, the reason we're talking about Anastasius right now is that because of his loyalty to Louis II, he also is favored by Louis II, and so when we move on to some future episodes, this is just going to take on an anti-pope flavor. And so much more than that. So, um, we're going to be coming back to this man and having lots and lots of discussions about him. Things I still don't understand. But anyways, this was not the only disobedient cleric that Leo had to deal with, because one of the usual haughty suspects has popped back up. Guesses? Haughty... No, it is the guy in Ravenna. It's the guy in Ravenna, of course. <laughs> In 853, the current bishop, John, once again had aspirations to become independent from the Pope, and had also overstepped his authority by seizing lands that weren't in his jurisdiction, but rather were in the Pope's jurisdiction. It seemed that because the archbishop's brother was the Duke of Emiliana, and they were both very friendly with the emperor, they thought that they were just going to be able to get away with whatever they want, and the Pope wouldn't be able to discipline them. But he was wrong. And in this case, Leo actually goes to Ravenna to censure John in person for his overly ambitious actions. Now, unfortunately, this chastisement wouldn't stick, and we're going to come back to John in a future episode as well, where he's going to continue to cause problems for future popes. But there's still one more, and this was Inkmar of Rams. Inkmar is a fairly important figure in Frankish history and was extremely learned and influential and an advisor to emperors Louis and Lothair and is going to essentially be important in the affairs of kings and emperors for quite a long time. This is a very powerful man in the Frankish court. And in 847, Pope Leo had elevated Inkmar to be the Archbishop of Rams and gave him the pallium after the deposition of Ebo. Remember Ebo? He had gone to Scandinavia before Ansgar and was involved in a fair bit with the Frankish kings. He was eventually deposed when Charles the Bald was in charge of France due to his loyalty to Lothair. But Ikmar had some fairly grand ambitions as archbishop and set out quickly to take back lands that had been lost to the bishopric in the instability that had ensued under Ebo. Ebo had given away a lot of lands to laymen for some reason, and now Inkmar wants them all back. 
He also decided that many of the ordinations that his predecessor Ebo had made should be considered invalid, which constantly put him at odds with many of the clerics who answered to him, and led to him deposing and excommunicating many of them at a synod in Soissons in 853. And one cleric that he excommunicated, a man called Fulcaric, was an imperial envoy. Now, this situation is a little strange because the excommunication against Falcaric seems to have been because he had a concubine, which he set aside and then went and got properly married. Okay, so he did write by her and they excommunicated him anyway. Yeah, but Falcaric was a vassal of the emperor, which made the situation tricky. So when Falcaric showed up in Rome to see the pope, claiming that he was uncanonically excommunicated... Pope Leo determined that Inkmar had gone beyond his authority and wrote to him, instructing him to retract the excommunication, like you do. He also wrote to all of the Frankish bishops, informing them of the situation as a means of reasserting his apostolic authority and to tell them that this had been done so wrongly. You can't just excommunicate an imperial envoy. But Inkmar just ignored the Pope, or claimed that he never received the Pope's letter, and carried on in a way that will absolutely, again, bring him into contact with future Popes. And if this weren't enough, there was yet one more person who disobeyed the authority of the papacy during this period. Although this one seems to be a little bit more incidental than intentional but it may have caused the longest rift. So we have the Duke of Brittany, Nomanoe, and he has a fairly complicated relationship with Emperor Lothair and Charles the Bald that had resulted in several rebellions and conflicts with the goal of becoming the independent Breton king, which he actually succeeds in. And to this effect, Nomanoe convened a synod and deposed five bishops on unknown charges and appointed new ones of his own choosing, and created his own archbishopric at Dole, which, of course, he had no canonical authority to do. So Pope Leo immediately condemns his actions and wrote to Nomanoe to outline the canonical procedures for depositions and consecrations, but the Pope will unfortunately not be able to do any more on this before he died. And this led to the Breton bishops being uncanonically separated from the church until the 13th century. So that's not good. Mm, that's a long time from now. That's like 500 years. So long. But there is one more thing we have to mention. In 853, Pope Leo IV is said to have anointed the young son of King Ethelwolf of Wessex to be a future king while they were on pilgrimage to Rome, and symbolically adopted this boy. And this boy was Alfred the Great. That's right, we're in Rex Factor territory. Well, we've made ah! it. Alfred the Great. This was the moment where I was in the research and I just went, oh, yes. <laughs> and I had a nerd out moment. It was great. But then, Pope Leo IV died on July 17th of 855. He was originally buried in a tomb in St. Peter's, but as with our other first four Leos, 
His remains were removed by Pope Pascal II to be interred with Leo one, three, and four in a marble tomb in the chapel of the Madonna della Colonna, which was rebuilt again in New St. Peter's in 1580 by Pope Gregory XIII. Yeah, so Leos only get to go in their Leo bone pile. They only get to go in their Leo bone pile. We have a description of this tomb in Wendy J. Rudin's book, The Deaths of the Popes. The ornate sarcophagus features Christ giving the scroll of the law to St. Peter, who is carrying a cross. On the other side, the Lord is Elias dropping his mantle for his disciple. So this, we've already seen the tomb of Leo I, of course, with Attila the Hun. But this is the Leo bone pile. Leo bone pile. Putting things in coffins that don't belong. All right, well, that's really pretty. It is very pretty. I like it. It's fine. They can all go in one bone pile behind this. It's pretty. If my bone pile looks like this, I will be very pleased. Right? Honestly, I wouldn't be mad if I had to share this with somebody. Yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. This is not a um, single bedroom apartment in the city that you share with 12 people. This is very nice. I don't want to share a single bedroom apartment with my bones and other people's bones. No. What a terrible concept. This is a luxury loft. And they probably have some room to wiggle around in there, you know? It's all good. Why are we talking about bones like they're sentient? They could be. Spooky, scary skeletons. Come on. But that is Pope Leo IV. And now it's time to rate him. Papatum and Phallium. He restored St. Peter's and St. Paul's, rectifying a spiritual wrong, having a huge psychological impact. The shrines were refitted and restored with luxury and wealth, and thereby extension prestige. When faced with various disobedience of clerics and the Duke of Brittany, the Pope denounced them and fought against their actions. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful in bringing them to heel, but... Some of this does seem to be because he died, and all three instances go on longer than his death, so we maybe shouldn't judge him too harshly for not bringing them to heel. The extent of his efforts is argued by many historians, including Raymond Davis, to have restored a sense of prestige to the papacy, especially after the scandals of Sergius II and his brother, and the damage of the Saracen raid. So he did a lot to reaffirm what the papacy should be. I think he's going to score well here. Yeah, I'm going to give him maybe, I don't know, I'm going to lean towards like a six. Okay, I'm thinking more. I'm debating between an eight or a nine. That's so high. I'm not, it's good, but the walls, we got walls. Okay, no, let's scoot it. No. (laughs) You can give him a six. That's okay. I'm going to give him an eight, I think. Because, you know, St. Peter's and Paul's was desecrated. The bodies of the saints were It's real potentially good, destroyed. but like, I feel like I'm going to end up putting some points in uh, Seculare Impactum for building the wall, too. True. So I got to, like, split the difference. Yeah, my points in this category are for St. Peter's and Paul's. And because he clearly, after, you know, these popes who just sold the offices to the highest builder like simony was rampant and he's like he fixed it yeah we're gonna fix it we're gonna bring back what it means to be a pope so you know what i'll give him a seven okay 
I just, I was debating, and then I was like, ugh, here we go, I'm, I'm here now. <laughs> so he'll get a 15 for Papatum and Valium. Fructus Prohibitum. There is nothing for him to score in this category. It's probably the only category he'll score poorly in. Seculari Impactum. Look, massive, massive rebuilding. The Aurelian walls were restored and fortified, protecting the bulk of the city, the Leonine city was created, protecting the areas that had no walls. He rebuilt Portus and settled the Corsican refugees there, providing safety, labor, and protection for them and for Rome. He relocated the citizens of Civitavecchia to a more defensible and sustainable location. He was part of the league that drove off the Muslim invaders in the Battle of Ostia created and successfully utilized an alliance with maritime republics, this is a 10. Yeah, he did really good. He did so good. A 10 is good. So he will get a 20 in Seculara Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Okay, there are so many images of this pope. He becomes a very prominent figure that was depicted by Raphael during the papacy of Pope Leo X. They loved this man, and they wanted to depict him all over the place. So, first, we're going to look at the image that we rate on him, and it's going to be so unfortunate because there are so many beautiful images of this man. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, he doesn't look bad. This does look like one of those, like, you know, like... Facebook, where, like, you pick the photos that go on Facebook, but then someone else tags you in a photo. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening here. He's very young. Clearly very young. Uh, he's the first pope we've had in a long time, if ever. That's smiling? Yeah, he's he's got a little smirk, but he does look like he was caught off guard. This would not be a photo that he would put on his timeline on purpose. Definitely not. Yeah, no, it's true. He he doesn't even look like he was ready for the photo. <laughs> no, someone was like, hey. He's like, yeah, and then there's the photo. I mean, it's worth some points. I'm trying I'm to- gonna give him an eight. Look, he's not- an eight. He's not bad looking. He definitely, this is not the most flattering image of him, and that's not yeah. his fault. <laughs> that's true. Okay, I will give him, I'll give him a seven, because I agree with you. I like the smile. So that's a 15, and when we divide it out, that's a 3.75. But, again, so many images to look at this man. So here are our bad artist images. Let's just get these out of the way. They're not as exciting. <laughs> no, none of those. Grumpy. God is a grumpy man. Like, the, took grumpy the man. whole essence of this one, made it old and angry. Yeah, they're not good. I don't like them. So first, let's have a look at Pope Leo with King Alfred the Great when he was a tiny little beb. That is a tiny beb. <laughs> you look like one of those murdered British boys. He does look like a murdered British boy. 100%. I also, there's something, this, this Leo looks nothing like the other Leos we've had so far, but I love it. He's got just the scraggliest beard. <laughs> that is the, yeah, that's a beard that you have not watched. It's got food in it still. It, yeah, it's not good. It's not good, but for some reason I just love it. And everyone else in this image looks deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> no one else wants to be here. <laughs> Look at that guy in the back, like, when this is over. They're all deeply uncomfortable, so I love this one. 
but not as much as I love some of these other ones because, of course, they're done by Raphael. So I'm going to give you, let's look at, this is The Assumption of the Virgin is a mosaic that he is in. We're going to look at that one. Oh, okay. This is a 9th century fresco in the Basilica of San Clemente in Rome. So this is potentially, again, because he has a square nimbus, we can assume that this one in particular was done while he was alive. He's still very cheerful. Very cheerful, very young. We're getting a sense of consistency here. So this one is painted by Raphael. This is in the Vatican Raphael rooms. It's the fire in the Borgo. So we've got a fire that he allegedly prayed about. We actually covered this in a different Pope's episode, but it is it is also... I don't think I've seen this. It's great. He is, if you're looking for the Pope, he's in the window. Oh yeah, he's way up there. I got distracted by this guy who's maybe attached to the wall by his dick. <laughs> yeah, the tall, naked man who's precariously positioned. Holding onto, like, a cloth of his whole penis. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe was, this must be some sort of censoring effort, because these oh, yes. penis yeah. cloths mm-hmm. are very confusing. Someone's gonna drop a whole baby. This is the fig leaf campaign in work. You can see there's also this man who is piggybacking this guy in front has has a fig leaf covering of cloth. Mm-hmm. This is what they do when they when they get mad about dicks in the Vatican. They're oh, just... but the tiny baby gets to have a dick. <laughs> See, the, which the one that's like so you've got the ladies laying like on the ground and then you've got two children running and one has a dick. Uh, <laughs> you had to look real close for that one. <laughs> I did not. I was just I was going to comment on how Raphael only knows how to to paint men because these women are just muscly soft men with dresses on and then i was like oh there is a dick that happens that happens a lot too so this is also another Raphael painting this is the battle of ostia oh so we can see the pope doing a prayer over the battle of ostia here i see him over there he's got a chubby face today he does he's got a chubby face this is more of the angry sort of grumpy looking man yeah and also i also have one more for you to look at because Pope Leo IV makes an appearance in the Vikings show where he plays a scene where young Alfred the Great goes on pilgrimage. He's played by John Cavanaugh, who famously plays the seer, which is a, also a much bigger role. And he also plays Cardinal Campeggio in The Tudors, which is what I initially recognized him for. This reminds me of that first image with Alfred, just the scraggly beard man. <laughs> yeah, scraggly beard man. Yeah, so he, I think he probably would have scored better if we were writing on those ones, but consistency. He definitely would have gotten, like, a biased Raphael point. (laughs) (laughs) Raphael likes painting him. Raphael does like painting him. And I should point out as well that the the one of the fire in the Borgo is thought to be painted by Raphael's assistant, Giulio Romano, more than Raphael himself. So we should keep that in mind. But generally, with artists and and artist apprentices, they were trying to mimic the style of their mentor. It's hard to say. Tempus Pontificus. April 10th, 847 to July 17th, 855. Eight years and a score of two. So that is good. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. 
Yes, he is a saint. Well, I would hope so. Wouldn't it be weird if, like, he had all these fancy Raphael paintings in things <laughs> and then he just was not a saint? Look, Pope Hadrian is not a saint. <laughs> he doesn't have Raphael paintings all over. <laughs> he doesn't have Raphael paintings, but he has lots of paintings, I guess, so... His feast day is July 17th, as far as I could tell, a little bit hard to suss out, and he is associated with some miracles. Miracles. The most famous miracle is the one being depicted in that Fire of the Borgo painting. So, allegedly, a fire broke out in the Borgo in Rome, which is a neighborhood district in Rome, which is recently encapsulated within the Leonine city. And Pope Leo drove back the flames by repeatedly making the sign of the cross. We have an account in the Liber Pontificalis. This bountiful Pope performed another wonder. Let us begin to tell it briefly. At the very start of his pontificate, which we have recorded above, a mighty fire attacked the Vicus of the Saxons, which by the power of its flames began to burn everything mightily. Many rows of people gathered there, wanting to quench the fire's flames. But the breath of the winds made the fire reach high into the sky, burning and reducing everything, so that it came near St. Peter and the Apostles' Basilica, consuming and wrecking the homes of the Saxons and Lombards, and the portico. Hearing this, the blessed pontiff set out thither in speed and haste, put himself in the path of the fire's force, and began to beseech the Lord to quench the fire's flames. When he made the sign of the cross with his own fingers, the fire could spread its flames no further, unable to endure the blessed pontiff's power. It was quenched and reduced its flames to ash. Oh, by the way, the copy of the Liber Pontificalis I have has a terrible typo that makes one of the sentences, by the power of its flames began to bum everything mightily. <laughs> Whoops. I mean, it sort of is. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And because I have nowhere else to put it naturally, uh, Bartolomeo Platina's account of Pope Leo IV also includes this little story. It is sure he was a man of so great sanctity that by his prayers he drove away out of an arch in St. Lucy's Church a basilisk, which with its breath and poison had killed many. So he, he puts out fires and drives away basilisks. Basilisks. More Komodo dragons. More Komodo dragons. I want to point out to you that he is not a patron saint of anything, so we get to administer our first patron sainthood in quite a while. Oh no. I guess it's uh, being tagged in Facebook photos you didn't. <laughs> okay, so being being tagged in unflattering photos on Facebook? Yeah. Okay. Alright. That's what he gets. That's what we've done to it's him. It's a very specific feeling. And everyone knows it. Yeah, it's true. You know what? That's the, He's going to get a lot of prayer now. So that brings us to his total score, which is a mighty 41.75, which is very wow. good. And puts him in 10th place. Nice. Out of all of our popes, I feel, I feel very good about that. And so with that, I must ask you if he's papally enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? Just on impact, because I'm not interested in talking about him so much. Yes, let us give him one. 
Okay, good, because I was prepared to argue for him, because, yeah, I mean, Raphael, like you said, wouldn't it be weird if he had all these Raphael paintings and wasn't important? And so, yes, yes, he's definitely going to get that. So, congratulations, Pope Leo IV. You get to fight St. Peter for the keys to the pearly gates. And that brings us to the end of our episode. So we would like to, as always, thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our biggest inspirations and say to the rest of you, thank you for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.